We're almost there, you guys. 300 episodes. And to celebrate, on November 6th, I'm doing a big, big panel here in Los Angeles at Largo at the Coronet. Uh, Again, November 6th, Carlton Cuse, Mike Shore, Damon Lindelof, Marta Kaufman, Hart Hansen, Jane Esmondson, Doug Petrie, David Fury, Liz Tiglar, Bridget Carpenter, Andrew Miller, and more. So many people, uh, there are not enough chairs at Largo. So I have to go out and rent them. So please come. Come celebrate 300 episodes of the Writers Panel with me, with these old pals. Some new pals will be there. Uh, That is on November 6th. Before that, I have a couple of events coming in October. Uh, On October 14th and 15th, I'll be at NerdCon Stories 2016 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, doing a bunch of different things. Click on my face on their website, and uh, you'll find out the things I'm doing. But there's... Acker and I are doing a little chat, Uh, I'm on a panel about adaptation, and I'm doing a big live writer's panel with John Green, who wrote The Fault in Our Stars, and uh, a bunch of other really great books. I'm I'm a longtime fan of his. On Sunday, October 30th, I'll be at EW Pop Fest, that's Entertainment Weekly's Pop Fest in Los Angeles, which has an insane lineup, and I can't believe they invited me to be part of it. I'm going to be doing a live panel with a very special guest that I will announce soon. Uh, Check that out. And then, as I said, November 6th is the writer's panel live at Largo at the Coronet 300th episode celebration. All of the information for all of these can be found at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And follow me on Twitter. I'll be talking about them uh, as we get close to them and as they happen. Uh, That's at Ben Blacker on Twitter. Hope to see you at one of these, or all of these, live events. Now entering Nerdist.com Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 400 writers on the show, so go back and check the archives. I'm sure you'll find more creators and more shows that you're interested in. I'm a writer myself, having written with my partner, Ben Acker, for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, FX's Cassius and Clay, among others. We've also written comics from Marvel, Image, Dynamite, and more. We created a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Maybe you'd like it. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more info. Let me know who you want to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. Like the color, only more so. Uh, and follow me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It always makes me feel good about myself. Today's episode was recorded at ATX Television Fest. Were you there? It was the best, right? Were you not there? Why weren't you there? Season 6 badges are now on sale. That's for next year. You don't want to miss this. They've already got some amazing things cooking. Go to atxfestival.com. Get your Season 6 badges there. Uh, Also, they're putting up uh, videos versions of all of the podcasts that I'll be releasing and all of the panels and stuff, uh, some that I won't be releasing. Go to atelevisionexperience.com, atelevisionexperience.com, and you can see the video version of this and uh, many other panels and events that happened at ATX this year. Hope to see you in 2017.
the TV shooting up the land. Mm -hmm. My baby love a western movie. My baby love the western movie. Bam, bam, shoot him up, pal. Mm -hmm. My baby love the Please welcome, from Justified, its creator and star, Graham Yost and Jonathan Tucker. Please welcome from Hell on Wheels, John Worth and Anson Mount. <laughs> and finally, from Westworld, Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy. Uh, you guys, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I want to start uh, with you Hell on Wheels fellas. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your relationship to Westerns and what it means to you to make a Western? What are the, what are the tropes that are interesting to you? What are the uh, feelings of a Western that are interesting to you? And, and John, we'll start with you. I, I really don't know. <laughs> you understand you've made a Western. Yes. <laughs> Oh, um, you know, I, I just love Westerns. I mean, I didn't know I did. Um, <laughs> I didn't intend to work on them. I had a chance to work on two Westerns on television. The first was The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. Maybe some of you saw that show. Um, and that was, a, that was a vastly different show from Hell on Wheels. Um, what... And I, I did not create Hell on Wheels. I came in in season three um, after these guys had already been toiling for, for two seasons to make this great show. And um, I love the, the sort of... Um, this is an old-school Western. I was talking to somebody this morning about... Um, they were asking, you know, well, can you just take any television show on television and think of it in Western terms, in terms of those tropes, you know, the white hats, the black hats, and so on and so forth. And I think, I think in our show, we, we were a little more earnest and straight ahead in terms of the old school Western, and, and there were a lot of white hats and black hats in our show, a few gray hats, but not as many as, uh, for instance, in Graham's show, you know, there, were a lot of, there was a lot of gray in that show as a contemporary Western, and I think... Um, you know, that's, the, the, that's a difference in doing a period piece. Yeah. Um, maybe, not, maybe not the case with Westworld. That looked, <laughs> that looked pretty awesome, I have to say. <laughs> Can't wait to see that. I, I think that's a, a good point. Uh, Anton, what, what was your experience with Westerns before? Were you a fan of the genre? I think, I think usually we spend way too much time talking about uh, genre, usually. The Western, though, is different because it's tied to our heritage as North Americans. Mm. And uh, we, John and I have had the, the honor of attending the Western Heritage Awards. Yes, that's a real thing. <laughs> a few times. And um, uh, when you go there, you meet these people. These are not TV fans. These are not movie fans. <laughs> these are not starstruck people. Yeah. They are people to whom the Western is very important as a legacy. Um, it's our martial art film. Yeah. And, uh, wanna, I think that's a really important and, and, and intelligent statement. Do you want to take that apart a little bit and tell people what you mean? It's similar. You know, it's similar. Yeah. It, 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 the, it, they're, they're, 
It's funny. I, I grew up when we had the we had five channels: the three networks, PBS, and the UHF channel. And then the <laughs> UHF, UHF channel every Sunday afternoon there was a double header of either two westerns or two martial arts films, or mix those two. And there are lots of similarities between feudal China and feudal United States. Um, the, 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 prior to the establishment of consistent law, you're in a place where, you, you know, can I follow my gut is the central question. Is that, is that something that will determine my fate in the appropriate manner? That's all. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's very astute. And there's a reason why movies like The Seven Samurai and Yojimbo can be remade as Westerns. I mean, a lot of the, the way of thinking translates. Uh, I want to jump over to Jonah and Lisa for a moment and so ask you sort of the same question. Was the jumping on point of Westworld for you the Western? Was it the original movie? Was it sci-fi? I mean, what, what's going on in there and what, what brought you guys to, to the property? <laughs> I wish we were sitting closer so we could cahoot on this. You know, Hold your uh, mic up. Hold your mic up. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's public <laughs> forum. Um, I know, I make it feel like we're just hanging out. I know, out. it's just like we're in your living room. Um, I'd never really been a traditional fan of, of Westerns. I didn't grow up watching them. Um, and, you know, both my parents are first-generation Americans, so it wasn't necessarily an ingrained part of my heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I started watching them later in life, the thing that really appealed to me about them, and the same thing that appeals to me about sci-fi and, and space opera, is, is you're dealing with characters and people in a kind of like lawless land, in a tabula rasa, where you get to really define who you are because the laws are incomplete and the rules are semi-enforced. <laughs> and I think the interesting thing about that is it forces you... It forces the characters within these pieces to think about law in terms of a personal code because it can't necessarily be reinforced externally. So it's something that they have to come up with internally. And I think there's a kind of timelessness to that. You know, um, Before I was a writer, I was a lawyer. And there's nobody like a lawyer to tell you the inefficiencies and inequalities embedded in the legal system. And it's especially timely now. But uh, I think that you know, we, we tend to, as individuals, all of us, you know, whether they're tiny travails, like a heartbreak that seems unfair, or huge, huge travails, like systematic oppression and, you know, uh, racism and sexism, the system doesn't always work for you. It's always incomplete, and it's always evolving. And in some ways, we're all frontiersmen. And so in that way, Westerns and sci-fi, which are basically space Westerns, um, it has a really timeless appeal and a, a really great form for exploring character. So that's what... That's for what character and theme. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great point. Uh, and, and that idea of, you know, uh, the law's not really working brings us well to justified. <laughs> um, I want to talk to Graham first and, and talk about... And, and we've spoken a couple of times. You can check them out on the Writer's Panel podcast. Uh, but... We've never really talked about your idea of Westerns coming into Justified. You know, it was always about the source material, you know, and that was always the watchword. Uh, but, but where did Westerns play into the creation of the show? Um, I grew up watching Westerns, a lot of Westerns. My dad had a television show on in, in Toronto for decades that was all about movies. And so I grew up watching uh, a lot of westerns, and, but my dad's taste—he loved everything. He loved all the cereals, the Tom Mix, you know, all of that stuff. But he um, was really attracted to the the movies that sort of 
did something different. To understand my father realized that in 1969, when The Wild Bunch came out, I was nine years old, and he took me to see it. <laughs> and if you've seen The Wild Bunch, you might say, maybe not a movie to take a nine-year-old nine to. But uh, he, he, you know, he loved Peckinpah's movies, starting with Ride the High Country through Wild Bunch. And uh, then going on a few years, um, Unforgiven, which I think is one of the great Westerns ever made. And what they both have in common is they take what you're used to, and even Ride the High Country, what you're used to in the stories of the Westerns, and, and turn it on its head. Mm-hmm. And um, so that appealed to him, and it really appealed to me. Um, and Justified had that element, too. Um, you know, Elmore Leonard used to say, oh, it's not a Western. But Elmore, you put him in a hat, you know, <laughs> and he's, he's got a gun on his hip and, and all of that, and he wears boots. But, um, I, you know, and I would always think about Elmore's writing, that his Western writing was crime fiction, and his crime fiction often had a Western element, and especially um, uh, Fire in the Hole and his other Raylan Gibbons stories. So it was always our idea of taking some of the Western uh, tropes and, again, turning them on their head. Um, You know, we were lucky enough to get Jonathan in the final season of Justified, and part of that was because we knew we wanted Raylan to have one big final showdown. And we felt that the audience was expecting it would be between Raylan and Boyd, mm-hmm. but we felt, hey, what are we going to do there? And we, we did all the math. Can Raylan kill Boyd? Can Boyd kill Raylan? Can Ava kill them both? That actually got most votes in the room. But, <laughs> um, so we said, no, we wanted a young gun. That's one of the tropes of Westerns is the young gun who's faster coming to town. And we were lucky enough to get Jonathan to play the part of Boone. And so we ended up getting our last big showdown, um, and that was very satisfying. Um, so it was always on our mind. And when Michael Dinner was shooting the pilot, and this was something that went to all the other directors, he wanted to shoot it clean like a classic Western. Um, so you'll see shots in the pilot that are nice and low, looking up yeah. at Raylan, and, and he's every bit the hero. That's really smart. I do want to, Jonathan, I want to jump to you and talk about uh, what's the fun of getting to play a cowboy? Um, well, it's also, you know, what's fun about coming onto a show that you are already a fan of, uh, a show that has created some of these, like, really archetypal television characters, you know, and how do you step up in their sixth and final season and not let the fans down and also kind of bring something to somebody like Graham Yost and his team of writers who are, I mean, this is, I have to say, I've never sat on a panel with this many showrunners like this who are as so accomplished. It's like, I'm at, and, my, and my buddy, um, my, Mr. Roush and Mr. Lancheski back there from Royal Pains, I feel like this is a very intimidating room. Um, <laughs> I've actually never been this intimidated. But, you're, hem, you're hemmed in. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's so exciting to come into a world that has already kind of traveled down this road, you know, as Anson said. It's like we, we know these stories, so how do you try to bring something fresh and unique and exciting to it um, and really pay respect to the genre and the writers and Elmore Leonard, as Graham has done with his team for so many seasons since his passing? Um, you know, that, that uh, showdown that we have on the show is like... I felt like a, a 12-year-old kid. Yeah. You know, here I am in this beautiful location. We shot it over a long weekend, so we had the, all the roads closed up in northern California, in kind of mid, mid, uh, mid-southern California, way in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and you feel like a little kid sitting there with your sidearm. Um, and, you know, in that scene, I, when I went back to watch it before coming to the panel, I didn't quite appreciate all the similarities in terms of the westerns that Grandma's team so beautifully interlaid. But, you know, the, the townspeople dropping behind. You have the two women dropping in their cars. You've got the crow. You've got this kind of, uh, 
you know, this, this emblematic uh, Western music. So just to kind of fit into that part uh, and to really pay respect and try to bring something fresh and exciting to it uh, was, was wonderful. Yeah, and, and you were great in it. I mean, the, the whole scene was great. Look, the whole goddamn series was great. <laughs> we just want more. But you can appreciate the weight of stepping into <laughs> the, that world. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Anson, I wanted to ask you the same question. You know, you're playing, uh, as John described, as sort of a more traditional cowboy. Um, how are you finding shades in that? And also, what's the fun of, of playing in a Western? Well, first of all, you get paid to ride a horse and, <laughs> and be outside. And I, I finally understand the, why those guys in the 50s and 60s did Westerns back-to-back. You get to be outside. It's so different trying to shoot a show in a studio. Sure. It, their studios are designed to remove the element of chaos, which is fundamental to the creative process. <laughs> and we had a lot of chaos with the weather in, in Alberta. Um, uh, <laughs> I forgot your original question. What? No, it's about playing Colin in terms of, of playing an archetypal type of character. I, yeah, I, I really try to steer clear of that. And I, I, I'm a big fan of um, writing down the obvious choices and then going to the opposite. Sure. <laughs> and uh, really just, I, I think that... The, 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 the secret of... Just to me, what I've discovered is that Truth is specificity, right? And the more specific that you can get about what it is that you're doing, who you are, what, what you're writing, what, it, it, it helps to create its own thing. And, and especially when you're doing a TV show and you don't necessarily know what you're becoming. We were lucky. We had a historical subject. But it, it's really, if you, if you put down a very general footprint, it's going to stay, it's going to be a very boring walk, yeah. you know. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's a good lesson for creators as well as creatives, I think. Um, Lisa and Jonah, let's talk about making a Western on television. That's a big thing. Mike? By the way, I, I am available for your show. <laughs> if you didn't... Our last season is premiering tonight, and then that's it. I'm off the AMC dime. They're going to stop covering my meals. We, so I... we may be smart, actually, to begin this conversation with the rest of you. But, you know, in, in the old days of Westerns, Bonanza and Have Gun Will Travel, in many cases, these shows didn't leave town. And I think audiences have a different expectation these days, that you're going to paint on a bigger canvas in many ways. Now, Justified had the luxury of being set in the modern day, so it was much easier to go out and shoot on location. Uh, Hell on Wheels, though, it's a big canvas you're painting on. How do do you manage that on a television budget? Know that this question is coming to you two next. (laughs) Um, I'm pretty sure we had two or three times as much money per episode to make this show than those guys did. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Not really. Um, You know, it, it is a challenge, but um, it helps to go to Canada, where there's a pretty, you know, significant tax credit. And a lot of it uh, still looks like the American West. Yeah. I mean, that, that was a big thing, was let's find a place that looks like Nebraska and Wyoming in, uh, you know, 1865. And so southern Alberta kind of fit the bill there. Um, but it is really challenging. Um, you know, you're kind of scraping for every penny. Um, you know, networks aren't... Uh, aren't in the business to lose money, so they're always on your ass about how much money you're spending, and you can save them money on 
16 episodes in a row, and if you're 10 cents over on the 17th, it's like, you know, they're on your ass. And, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. You can't, you can't win for losing with those people sometimes. Um, but, um, you know, we managed to do it. I mean, we, we didn't have a... We had a healthy budget, I would say, not a... You know, we, we, didn't ha- we weren't pocketing any money every week, but uh, we, we did it. Yeah. Oh, you absolutely pulled it off. Um, so, so let's talk about this, you know, creating a show on the scope that you're, you've created Westworld. And even just from this three-minute clip, we can see that it is enormous in scope. It's Western and it's sci-fi, which means not just horses, which are very expensive, but special effects and things like that. How are you guys managing this and the audience expectation for fucking Game of Thrones or something? <laughs> Well, it was actually Game of Thrones that, that um, made us feel like we could pull this off. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the 30-second pitch for Westworld was we were sort of making Days of Heaven and Alien simultaneously and then cutting them together, <laughs> which is kind of our dream project, right? I mean, you get to explore two genres, genres simultaneously uh, and, and play with the juxtaposition of both. It's, yeah. it's, it's fantastic. HBO really felt like the only place that we could make this. Uh, and, and Game of Thrones was really the inspiration for us. I mean, so many fantastic dramas on TV, period, so many, and, and so many great ones on HBO, but Game of Thrones had this commitment to um, practical production value, which is, you know, that's not, uh, that's not necessarily what's in vogue these days. I mean, there's a lot of location shooting in part because of tax reasons. I mean, naturally, TV started to look a little different because of the explosion of tax incentives driving production to North Carolina and driving production elsewhere. For Westerns, you've got a limited... Cool. I mean, I'd worked in New York for five years, and I loved it. And we did spend a couple of weeks thinking about, could we shoot this in Manhattan? You know, <laughs> some, some areas in Long Island that might, might pass muster. <laughs> but the commitment here from the beginning with the network was, it's got to have that big scope. You know, the, the advantage of California uh, and Southern California, part of the reason why people made, started making movies there in the first place, is the, the vast diversity of landscape. So we accomplished an awful lot in California. And then, uh, you know, for me, and I've driven cross-country uh, any chance I get uh, half a dozen times. And for me, Utah was, with all due respect, Texas. Texas is beautiful. Thank you, Texas. <laughs> uh, Utah, for me, was always, you know, you got a lot of places that look like uh, Colorado. you got a lot of places that look like Montana. They're beautiful places. Nothing looks like Utah. Only the place in the world looks like Utah is Wadi Rum and Jordan. Uh, and so we had the ability to go to Utah for... Uh, several weeks of production photography supported by a network who knew that we needed to paint on that big canvas. Uh, it was a fantastic place. And so between, you know, Southland, California and Castle Valley in Utah, which is actually where John Ford went to go make his last four films. He got tired of Monument Valley. He said, I'm, I'm fed up with Monument Valley. Give me someone that looks better. And they went looking and they found a place called Castle Valley. We went out to scout it with uh, the DP who shot the pilot. Paul Cameron is incredibly talented DP. And we got to um, we got to this ranch out in Castle Valley and wandering around it just kind of in a daze, frankly. It's as if someone took half a Monument Valley and glued it to the Alps and then ran the Colorado River right through the middle of it. Wow. And, uh, and I looked around and I said, God, it looks just like a Marlboro commercial. And Paul laughed and he said, I've shot, I've shot 12 Marlboro commercials right here. <laughs> may I ask what, what y'all's current per episode budget is? <laughs> no, you, you may you not. You can ask. <laughs> I'm sorry, we're, Anson, we're not taking questions right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just curious and ready to be jealous. Well, it, sound, it sounds like uh, you guys had the experience where the network was absolutely behind you and shared the vision that you shared. And, and Graham, from what I understand, FX sort of had that, you sort of had that same situation with FX. <laughs> 
Um, FX was totally behind the idea of doing an Elmore Leonard show as Elmore would want it done. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was the big commitment. But um, yeah, we had seven days for the entire season. <laughs> it was crazy. No, we had seven days. I'm sure it seven often days felt that an way. Episode. And you know, the thing of it is, look, uh, I saw that trailer, and there's part of me that just ached with envy. But the other part part is. I cannot wait to see that show. I was, I was one of those few dinosaurs who clapped when you asked, did you see it in the theater? <laughs> yes, I did. Um, I already copped to being nine when Wild Bunch came out. But anyway, but it, you know, it, God bless HBO for being willing to put that kind of money into that and into Game of Thrones. I mean, well, and imagine say, trying to do Game of Thrones on FX or AMC. You just couldn't do it. L- um, let, me, let me say, though, to your credit, and what makes Justified one of the great shows, is you didn't have that budget, you couldn't have that expansive scope, and so you knew we have to have characters. And what well, you guys did with characters was... Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would... Yeah, but that comes back to Elmore. I mean, most yeah. of his books are people in rooms, you know, <laughs> um, talking funny to each other and, and, and then shooting each other or having sex, you know. Uh, That's all we want from TV. Yeah. <laughs> so... That, that fit that fit for our uh, our show. That said, it was set in Kentucky, and we had to shoot it in Southern California. Um, so we would get you know there'd be posts and emails, but that tree does not exist in Kentucky, and it's like, dude, that if okay, uh, you're right. Um, and we did you know we'd have to do CG palm tree removal on certain scenes and stuff. Um, but you know it it we found an area in this area called Green Valley, which was uh, up by Magic Mountain, and then in about half an hour that looked a little like Kentucky, close enough. So that became one of our home bases. Mm -hmm. Uh, John and Anson, you know, we've talked about these other shows that sort of kick out uh, the genre conventions. And while Hell on Wheels is a much more down-the-middle sort of Western, you guys are changing things. You are kind of pushing at the boundaries of those genre conventions. Uh, how, does, how do those conversations take place in the writer's room? How does it happen even in character choices? You know, you talked about what is the obvious choice, what is a different choice. Maybe you can come up with a, a specific example uh, for playing the non-obvious choice in either the writing or the acting. Well, one of the things we always talked about in the writer's room was let's stay in our 19th century heads. I was the only person who... <laughs> remotely lived close to the 19th century. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard because sometimes, you you know, I would say some dumbass thing like, you know, well, um, you know, uh, what would the gun control people be talking about then? And somebody would say, there was no gun control in the 19th century. I mean, that was a, a gun was a tool. People, you know, they carried guns around because it was like a shovel or hammer. They, you know, it was a tool. So uh, what was your question? That does it for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I want to I make sure we have enough time for questions from you guys. If you have questions, start to line up, please, at the microphones. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I want to ask uh, all of you guys something we saw in the Justified clip, uh, which I think is so important to any television, not just the Western genre, is humor. And sometimes that can get lost in a Western. Uh, so can you guys talk about working the humor in Justified? And I'd be curious to hear from all of you how you're getting some humor into your stories. Well, I, I know when Justified, one of our rules in casting was finding people who could be funny. 
um, and uh, Jonathan fit that bill perfectly. Just that little twist, because, again, back to Elmore, his characters never told jokes, and they never laughed at each other, but they always had a way of putting things that was amusing. And so that was always our goal. We, you know, some, there were times where, man, we're making a comedy where people get killed a lot, <laughs> um, which makes it really funny. No, um, <laughs> So that was, that was bred into it. But you think of back to John Ford, some of his movies. I was just thinking My Darling Clementine. There's a great sense of humor throughout that movie and, and in The Wild Bunch. Um, just the, the camaraderie of the men, and they're always giving Warren Oates a lot of crap um, throughout the whole movie. But I, I think with you know, almost any movie, you need to find those moments, and that really makes the characters ever more human because people are always joking around. That's just part of life. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, I'm curious to hear about, I mean, your character was so scary, so terrifying, yet very funny. Yeah, I mean, they, was, this, was this a conscious choice? Did you know you're being funny? Yeah, the lines are, I mean, some of the dialogue sure. are so fabulous. You know? But I mean, to really, the, the thing to try to um, share with people who don't work on sets or in the business is that you, it's very hard to walk into a set and create a real character unless, and it's rare, um, unless the, the creator of the show is fearless, unless they're confident in their own ability. And it comes from the showrunner, and then it trickles down in the writer's room to all the heads of production. And they allow everybody to really take risks in their respective jobs. And so there, all of a sudden, you find these wonderful characters. And that's what ends up happening in a show like Justified. Yes, why that show succeeds and also why it's funny. It's funny because real people being real characters playing authentically will find humor in lots of different situations. And they're interesting to watch, and it's compelling to watch over six seasons. So it really is a credit to the people who, at the top, are courageous and confident in themselves and allow everybody else to go and do their job. But it's hard not to say something like, you know, my, my, my balls are purple, they're so blue. <laughs> you know, and not th- if you play that seriously, that's really funny. And so, you know, you get that character. One of the trap doors. Well, one more thing about that quickly and justified is, I mean, we had Patton Oswalt on the show. Right. He's one of the funniest human beings alive. And so we wrote this part for him, wrote it for him, called Constable Bob. And you'd write lines, and you would come up with something that you thought was really funny. And Patton would deliver it completely straight, completely earnest. He was totally behind it. And that made it hysterical. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it's so funny, because what I was about to say is that the flip side of that is one of the trap doors of the Western is to be in, in, unceasingly deliberate. Mm-hmm. You know, and you just, you, uh, you can only smolder for so long. <laughs> then you start to get sore. So, uh, <laughs> you know, you've got you to be able to take the piss out of yourself to be a human being and That's to true. actually have a character, I think. So, uh, and it, it, there's something to be said for comic relief, I think. Here's how comedy worked on Hell on Wheels. Um, we had a scene where a guy, guy showed up to, you know, like our stories were either a guy leaves town or a guy comes to town. That was the story. That's a classic um, Western setup. Yeah. So uh, a guy comes to town, and he's, he's going to kill uh, Colin Bohannon. And he chases him around for a little bit. And um, Elam chases him out of town. And then he comes back to town. And then Elam tells Anson, or Colin, um, you know, there's a dude here, and he wants to, he's, I think he's going to kill you. So uh, Colin gets drunk. I'm getting to the comedy part. He gets drunk. He finds the guy. They're standing between two trains, and he says, um, are you here to kill me? And the guy goes, yeah. And Cullen says, is there anything I can do to talk you out of it? And the guy goes, no. And he pulls out his gun and shoots him in the face. 
That was the scene. I laughed my ass off. <laughs> were Jonah and Lisa, were you guys aware of uh, using humor in Westworld? You've already got a weird world to try to present. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll answer part of it, and you can jump in. I mean, I think part of it is because there is this meta level to the world, and we were dealing with the technicians also scripting the Westworld. Yeah. They were aware that you needed humor, too. And you got some great comic actors We in have that. some great comic actors there, and we have some, some new finds, too. You know, And so there's the kind of, you know, even, and the, I think the great thing about doing kind of two genres mashed in one is the disconnect between... You know, there'll be this really serious love scene playing out in these, like, this, like, golden-hued sunset. And then you'll just have some, like, klutzy tech just blundering about doing completely narcissistic shit. You know, and, and we got to make fun of writers. We got to make fun of ourselves because we have these, like, <laughs> histrionic, operatic creative tantrums below ground <laughs> while up above ground they're getting, like, shot and massacred. <laughs> it's just so much worse. So... Right. Yeah, it's not apparent for the trailer. It's actually a workplace situation or comedy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like part of it actually is that, though, which is really cool. It's really fun. You get to play all the genres. It took an entire season before one of our actors turned around and was like, you know, we had this particularly uh, um, hair-raising scene in the finale, and, 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 which, which is about the contrast between these artificial lives that our characters are living, unbeknownst, you know, they don't understand that our show, the, in the inversion for the original film, for those of you who've seen it, is our, um, our show is about the robots who do not realize that they're in a fake Western. Mm-hmm. They, they think they're in a real Western. Uh, and, and so we had a particularly hair-raising scene like that, and finally two of the actors turned around, and they're like, we're trying to figure out what this is like. And they're like, it's fucking us. It's the actors and the writers. <laughs> like, you got it. Awesome. <laughs> that is great. Uh, question right here, yes. Oh, yeah. Hey. Um, my question is for Lisa, because um, I know it's a bit unfair that we kind of force women in the industry to answer for all women, but... Um, but you're going I, to do that? But I'm going to do it, yeah. <laughs> but I think, for example, more than sci-fi, Western is very white, very male. Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> And so how, do, how is it like to write Sorry. in this genre? I think it's, it's an incredible opportunity, you know, um, because uh, I think that, you know, traditionally Westerns, um, in their kind of golden day, uh, they were a lot about male honor um, and, again, you know, code of living. And I think when you take that, and there's still a lot of, interesting and necessary things, frankly, to be said about male honor and redefining it for this age, right? But you can also take that lens and that investigation and apply it to all the other people on this Western frontier. And, and that's what we've really enjoyed doing and, and, and relished doing because it, it, I think there's so much to dig into. And there's especially about, like, choosing a code of conduct when the world is against you, you know, when you're a more oppressed figure in an already lawless land. The stakes just get higher and higher. Um, so it's incredibly gratifying space to work within, you know, and, and I can't say, you know, in, in this season that we cover all, all ground with all people, because, you know, we don't, and we never, we never will be able to do it fully, but I, I will say that, um, that, you know, we try to do our actors and the characters themselves the service of, of loving them, even if they're villains, and empathizing with them, and knowing what they're going to go through, and how hard it is, and, and it's, it's a really wonderful task, because, 
Uh, you know, a, a man like my husband has to write like an uh, African-American, oh, actually, she's British in this, you know, prostitute at the turn of the century. And, and it opens your mind a little, and it makes you question assumptions, just as it does for me to write like a swashbuckling white gunslinger who's male. Um, and so uh, I think it's a, it's a lesson in empathy, and it's, uh, it's humbling and, and really gratifying. Thank you. Next question. Actually, mine kind of piggybacks on hers. She had a really good question. Um, when you are writing a historical situation for a modern audience, how do you go about making sure that the, the portrayals are modern, but also true to the racism and the sexism and stuff of the time? <laughs> Mr. Yost. a modern show. That's not our question. That's fine. Um, n- now I'm remembering what your question was from before. Thank you. Um, we, uh, you know, it's important to, to have your 19th century hat on, right? Are you guys with me? Um, but you're, we're not just telling, it's not just a, an historical treatise. You know, we're not, this isn't history class. So um, the challenge is always to try to figure out how to tell um, a contemporary story about contemporary issues that are relevant to a contemporary audience Mm -hmm. but um, are sitting within the sort of authentic environment that you've created within your show. So, um, and that's what I was talking about, gun control issues and all that sort of stuff. Um, Those are contemporary issues. You know, we don't, they, they weren't dealing with them then so it wasn't relevant to characters in our show. But, um, I think it's important to to be in the now, you know, and this is sort of what Lisa was saying. You know, we weren't living then. We don't know what those people were really facing or what they were really feeling, but we can imagine, because um, that's what we're paid to do, to imagine things, um, what the circumstances must have been like and try to put ourselves into it. That's the contemporary spin, but then hold to sort of a, a period aesthetic, if possible. You remember when you got the phone call from the higher-up who shall remain unnamed, who's wider than me, <laughs> said, this is during four seasons, said, I'm not comfortable with the N-word. Yeah. And we're like, <laughs> well, what, we're, now? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, as a sort of a liberal white dude who had really never said the N-word out loud um, except in a writer's room, and it made me feel really awkward. Here I was uh, arguing for characters to be able to say the N-word on television, um, and uh, it was a really weird place to be, especially with a network who has you know The Walking Dead on, and they chop people to bits, and that doesn't seem to bother them, but language was an issue for them. So, uh, yeah. Well, it's, it is, I mean, I think what you're getting at it before is it's a matter of perspective, right? Is we can, we can present the views that they had at the time, but give a per- contemporary perspective. Well, you can on also you do can it in an irresponsible fashion. Absolutely. You know, if, if, a, if a TV show exists for a reason, it's to provide a mer- medical for, metaphorical platform, hopefully, for us to talk around the water cooler. And you can sling that word around for no reason whatsoever, and that would be very offensive. But if you are willing to... to see it through the facet of where we are today and what we're talking about today, then I think it, it, it can be very helpful. Sure. And, and that, just as an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think any conversation about Westerns on television uh, would be remiss if we didn't mention uh, Deadwood. And 
what that show did to uh, move the genre along in a lot of ways. Do any of you guys have thoughts on that? Well, the proof that um, Tim Oliphant looked good in a cowboy hat, so... <laughs> Helpful to you. But, I mean, Deadwood was another deconstruction of the Western, um, and, you know, looks like Westworld is doing the ultimate deconstruction of the Western, yeah. um, at least for, for this time. So that was one thing that Deadwood was really onto. Yeah. Uh, every single review when we, when we premiered was, well, it's not Deadwood. <laughs> Well, fuck you. I'm trying to be Deadwood. You know? That's, that's, you, that may be said, but Westworld was going to face It's No Hell on Wheels. <laughs> I doubt it. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, let's just uh, go down the line. I usually end by asking what you guys are watching on television. Instead, let's talk about Westerns. And uh, tell me either your, your, some of your favorite Westerns in movies, on television, uh, anything, starting with you, Jonah. Well, it was great fun. Lisa was, you know, had watched fewer westerns than I had, because our show is about sort of the, you know, the meta western, the idea of a western, you know, articulated by Anthony Hopkins' character and a group of writers sort of creating a western you can inhabit. We felt like we had to go back and watch all of the westerns and, and try to sort of pull <laughs> out great. the best tropes. And uh, it, it was kind of a fascinating journey because I grew up watching many of them, but revisiting them again really struck. Um, by th- and it's kind of interesting watching genres exhaust themselves yeah. because all the stories, you know, we flatter ourselves uh, but, you know, this shit has all been done before all these stories have been told before and we just, you know, we find a new mode that we're interested in right now, it's superheroes, right? and it's all the same stories mm-hmm. but just with different, different kind of silly costumes, right? Um, <clears throat> and going through it again, you saw just a just, it's like a bounded infinity the amount of of, of, of uh, variations on a theme you could find within it. Uh, the ones that stuck out, the three, we were just as we were walking over here, talking a little bit about them. Um, Unforgiven, which I think is a, is, a, is a masterpiece and a great example of when a genre exhausts itself, it collapses down into you know, a black hole and that's Unforgiven, <laughs> right? It's like yeah. it's this saying, concentrated and Western. We're done. Right? <laughs> Hopefully not done. But um, <clears throat> Unforgiven, uh, The Wild Bunch, hugely influential film for me. I saw the, the re-release when it was uh, when when Warner's put it back out again. <laughs> uh, and uh, and and uh, all the Leone films. Those those for me were the touchstones. I grew up two older brothers, and so occasionally I'd be able to sneak and look at Fistful of Dollars, and um, and in particular one of the ones that we really came back to is Once Once Upon a Time in the West, which is a fucking masterpiece. Yeah. With an incredibly strong female character. Graham? Um, I'll just mention, because uh, the, the three I mentioned before, um, you know, Ride the High Country, Wild Bunch, and uh, Unforgiven, I would throw in another peck and paw that's sort of forgotten over the years, but it's worth checking out, called The, uh, the Ballad of Cable Hogue with Jason Robarts. <laughs> and one of the things that peck and paw loved was the sense of an end of an era, men out of time. You know, the no, they no longer fit in to that world. Wild Bunch is certainly that. Ride the High Country is that. And Ballad of Cable Hogue is a much softer movie. It's not a traditional Western any more than, let's say, Tender Mercies is a, is a Western. But um, it still has it, that, that period and that feeling. Um, it's a beautiful, lyrical little movie. Mm-hmm. Jonathan? Um, my first film was a Western. It was in 1992. 
It was a spaghetti western with guys named Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer, who were the famous spaghetti western stars of Europe. So in that vein, uh, they were put together by Sergio Leone. In that vein, Tom Popo, the great ramen noodle western out of Japan, is really a classic. If you have not seen it, and you can walk away and watch Tom Popo, it's absolutely wonderful. John, I think if um, we never quite achieved um, a comparison to Cat Blue, but that, uh, that movie is just unbelievable. It's so good. Um, no, Hell on Wheels wasn't Cat Blue, really. But um, we, we, we loved, uh, you know, for our show, what we used for inspiration um, was pretty much anything with Lee Marvin in it. So we watched The Professionals, Monty Walsh, uh, some of those great westerns. Um, I, loved, I particularly loved a movie called There Was a Crooked Man. Did you guys ever see that? I don't, um, who is that? I've never seen it. It was with um, Kirk Douglas. And uh, it's a really, it's a quirky, weird, sort of late 60s uh, Western, just before the spin, you know, when um, Butch Cassidy came and kind of turned the Western genre on its head. Also, anything with Robert Redford, um, you know, Jeremiah Johnson, Butch Cassidy, uh, those movies were big touchstones for us on this show. Cool. Yeah, there's so many, there's so many great forgotten ones uh, that I, I, I have to say, Monty Walsh, the professionals, which is, I'm willing to bet the idea for the A team came from. So it's worth watching it just from that that viewpoint. Um, and then um, my darling Clementine is a is a forgotten classic. Uh, John Ford, it's the Tombstone story, but I think better. And it um, has just a it, it's um it's Henry Fonda plays wider. And it's Victor Mature plays an amazing Doc Holliday. It's a beautiful film. Nice. Lisa, are there any you want to add on that you discovered in, in watching these? <laughs> what were some that, that you keep coming back to, though, uh, mentally, maybe in the writer's room or in your own writing? Uh, you know, I, I think the one, that, the one that opened the doors for me and said, Westerns can be for me, too. And not just in a way that I appreciate the craft and everything, but in the way in which I felt a very visceral connection with it. It was, it was um, Once Upon a Time in the West. That was a transformative moment for, for me when we were watching it because um, I, I just understood and, and loved all the characters, even if I, I disagreed with their choices. It was beautiful and languorous at the beginning. It just took its time, and I never felt bored. I just wanted to see people drinking water from their hats. And by the end, you know, I was watching Claudia Cardinale, and she took all of the kind of tropes about, you know, are you a virgin or a whore? Are you the woman in white or the woman in red? Or, you know, and she turned them upside down a million times and put them through a spin cycle and you don't really know where you come out. And it ends with the guy telling her it's okay to be sexually harassed. It's all so confusing. <laughs> but, but life is confusing. And, and I admired the strength with which she kind of confronted it and, and, and made it on her own terms. So, and her so, and Jack Palance together. Yeah. It's just fantastic. On fire. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. Please give a hand to all of our panelists. Thank you all for being here. Thank you guys for coming out. Now leaving Nerdist.com.